and it made us who we are. And so there's nothing like getting to be among you. And something she, I overheard her saying to a friend of hers today on the phone, or to our daughter, excuse me, was that there's so much re-energizing in us to get to be back in this set. So it's wonderful. Uh, I thought about, you know, like, man, now I can show you pictures of what we looked like back then. She looks the same. It's a little more scary on my end. Um, but uh, we've looked at some characters, and I want to review this real quickly, because what we're thinking about is something thematic in Scripture. And that is that there's a system of circumstances. And you remember Esther's holiday, Purim, Next March 6th and 7th, celebrated for 2,400 years, Purim means randomness. It's a holiday that actually talks about the fact that in life so many things are out of our control that it can honestly feel like we're rolling the dice. And it does feel like that sometimes. Several years ago at our church, we had six men who were diagnosed with prostate cancer around the same time, within some weeks of each other. Five of them survived. So why not the sixth? People, as we were navigating through the pandemic, right? It always was one of those things where we were trying to figure out Okay, so why did that person pass away? Was it because they were old? Maybe they had a pre-existing condition. I mean, what was it that took this life and not this life? This life and not this life. I'm in a mentoring group with a friend of mine who's another professor. And we have 12 young ministers that for the last 10 years, uh, we've had a small mentoring group with just those 12 young ministers. One of them, whose name is Doug, lives in Texas. And his church, I don't think, was that uncommon from a lot of churches. You had a spectrum of feelings about uh, the pandemic, right? So you had some people thought it was nothing, it's no big deal, it was just like the flu. You had other people that took it super seriously and, and were worried that if they caught it, they would die. How many of you kind of seen that spectrum play out where you're from, right? So that wasn't that uncommon, right? But the people that thought it was no big deal some of them would be kind of flippant and make jokes about it until his 71-year-old father, who was a very athletic guy, former basketball star, high school basketball coach, and so on, got COVID. Same time his mom did. They both went into the hospital, but she survived and he died. And he said, and then it was awkward because people would forget so they'd still kind of start making jokes about COVID, and then they'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. Because they just forget what it was like. Last year, in fact, here in just a few days, we have the one-year mark of a 29-year-old mom at our church who died of COVID. Uh, her husband, she and her husband, very athletic people, and he just didn't feel comfortable getting the vaccine. So he encouraged both of them not to get the vaccine. Now her grandmother passed away from COVID, her uncle had passed away from COVID, but, and her mom tried to convince her to get the vaccine, but it was kind of driving a wedge, you know, and you gotta be careful about family relationships. So she backed off, she didn't. Their four-year-old daughter got COVID, passed it to her 29-year-old mom, and on the 8th of October last year, I got a text at 5 and 1 in the morning, Taryn didn't make it. How? How does that happen? Well, see, Purim says life feels random. Life can feel what? Random. How many of you had anyone from your high school die in like an accident or from a disease or something like that? I want to see a show of hands. We don't think that's going to happen, do we? Right? We don't. When I was in the first grade, Tim Wall was a classmate of mine. One day, Tim didn't come to school. Our teacher gets up in front of us and explains that there was an accident at Tim's house this morning. Now, bear in mind, we're six and seven-year-olds, right? But we got to know why Tim, not only wasn't there that day, Tim's not coming back to school. And that's because Tim's little brother, who did not know what he was doing, 
crawled out of the backseat, crawled up, and knocked the shifter into gear when his mom was closing the garage door and the car pushed forward and took the life of their mother. Now, how many of you know that cars now have safety uh, uh, mechanisms on those gear shifters so that can't happen? See, there's all kinds of things like that. We didn't have them then. I promise you, there isn't a first grader in the world that goes to school thinking that's the story they'll hear that morning. So should we talk about Uvalde, Texas? Right. You get what I'm saying? Or Buffalo, New York. Can it not feel like it's just rolling the dice to get up and walk out the door sometimes? That's what Purim is about. That's why Gideon was grinding grain in a hole. But God says, well, Gideon, there is something you could do. And that is you can become who you want to be, respond how you want to respond, invest how you want to invest. And we know the story because we talked about it last night, right? Even when they were worried, they kept pursuing. And then we've got Esther. And in Esther's situation, what does it look like? There is nothing I can do. Mordecai says, well, there is something you can do. It's just different than what you're imagining. And you remember Esther has to stop, pray, fast. What does Esther finally say? I'll do it, and if I die, I die. Right? But you understand, we're still celebrating her holiday 2,400 years later because she was all in. So we have faith and hope. Now we're going to talk about love, and we're going to take a few moments to talk about the Apostle Paul. I want to read to you a couple of things that I think will put his story into context. The first one is Acts chapter 20, verses 22 to 24. Acts 20, 22 to 24. He said, and now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me that in city after city... Jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me. Unless I can use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Now notice what he said. I checked in with the Holy Spirit. Paul's boss, right? That's Paul's boss. Checked in with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, how's it look? Holy Spirit says, not good. Can you define not good? Yep. City after city, jail and suffering. Any other options? Nope. Paul says, now, some of you are thinking, well, then Paul probably ought to go the other direction. Paul says, well, yeah, but my, my life wouldn't be, wouldn't be worth living if it wasn't for the gospel. Look at the next chapter, Acts chapter 21, verse 10. Several days later, Agabus, a man who had a gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. He came over, he took Paul's belt, and he bound his own hands and feet with it. Then he said, the Holy Spirit declares, so shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. Well, when we heard this, we and the local believers, we all begged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But Paul said, why all this weeping? You're breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. And when it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and we said, well, the Lord's will be done. How many of you are a little bit familiar with some of these passages? A little bit familiar with Paul? If we were going to put a list of the top five most committed people in the New Testament, Paul would have to make the list, right? And we know that along with the other apostles, all except for the apostle John, they all die horrible deaths. We have the history of all of this. Paul as well. But here's something I want you to process for a few moments. Paul says, something happened in my life that made me think so differently 
that even death couldn't turn me back from following Jesus. Even the threat of death. What happened? He said, well, I'll, I'll tell you a story. And his story is told four different times in the New Testament. But Paul says, here's what happened. I thought Jesus was a hoax. That's what I thought. I thought he was a liar. And I couldn't stand it. Something had to be done. Jesus, he thought, was a deceiver of the people. And somebody's got to put a stop to this foolishness. And he said, so I was all in. He said, I poured my energy into it. One time he tells the story, he said, I was obsessed. I was just obsessed with putting them in this thing. He said, so I got legal letters. I went toward Damascus. I was going up north. On my way up north, had an awkward moment. Tell us about it. I met Jesus. Got to be awkward. Thought he was dead. It has to count as an awkward dead when you meet some, or a day when you meet someone you thought was dead. That's got to be weird, right? That'd be like standing at a funeral, casket's closed. You hear this, right? You know, so there's Jesus, right? He meets Jesus, and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Paul asks a really important question. Who are you? Paul thought he had Jesus figured out. On the road to Damascus, what does he figure out? I don't have Jesus figured out. Jesus says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go into a town, and somebody else is going to tell you what to do. Well, in Acts chapter 9, the guy that's going to tell him what to do is Ananias. So, Jesus meets Paul, sets him up, and then the Holy Spirit has a conversation, kind of a consulting, coaching conversation, with a Christian named Ananias. Holy Spirit says, Ananias. Ananias says, yes, Lord. He says, we got a guy who needs to hear the gospel. Ananias is pumped. Who is he? Saul. Ananias says, Lord, I don't think you have, have done your prep work. This man came up here to murder us. So, no, 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 you got the wrong guy. God says, no, actually, he's my guy. So now Ananias has to make a decision. Do I want to hold on to the way that I picture this human and stick with it even though God wants me to look at him a different way? Or will I allow my heart to change? Could I love him the way God loves him? Paul will tell you what happened in my life, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6 is that I learned that the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. Paul will tell you in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he'll say in verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I don't have love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I've got the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith that I can move mountains, but don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and even give my body over to hardship so I may boast about my sacrifice, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Paul says, here's what happened. I'm on the road to Damascus. I meet Jesus. I'm struck blind. For three days, I'm in this blind stupor. I'm considering my life. I realize how wrong I've been. I start thinking about the river of tears I have caused in people's lives. I think about the number of graves that families have dug to bury the people that I killed in persecution. How can I survive this? And God says, you'll survive it. If you could just trust that I'll love you through it. If you could just trust that I'll love you through it. So I want us to start a little exercise here, and I want you to think about it out loud with me. What makes you lovable to God? What makes you lovable to God. I want you to process this with me. Because one of the things we've got to contend with is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? 
we know the story of the gospel. Why did Jesus go to the cross? To forgive us of our sin. So is it not technically correct to acknowledge that Jesus died for the sins of the world? If he died for the sins of the world, if you're a part of the world and you have sin, then that would mean he died for you. So something you got to kind of process is that God made a decision that he couldn't stand the thought of heaven without you. And you say, well, like, how far was God willing to take that? And God says, well, look at the cross, and I hope that gives you an answer. So now put yourself in the shoes of the Apostle Paul. Just how bad did it get? What would it have been like to go to church in Jerusalem or go back up to Damascus and go to church and meet people whose loved one is in a grave because of you. Because of your past life. Right? So somebody might say, hey man, you gotta come to church today. Why do I gotta come to church today? The Apostle Paul's preaching. And somebody else has to swallow kind of hard and say, all right. Because they remember when Saul wasn't following Christ. I mean, they had to bury their loved one because of him. So what makes Saul lovable to God? So much so that God, through Jesus Christ, would save Saul and commission him to share the gospel. When Paul was writing to Timothy, Saul, who became Paul, was writing to Timothy, he said, here's a trustworthy statement. Jesus Christ came into the world of saved sinners, and I'm the worst one you'll ever meet. And he said, but he saved me as an example for you so that you could trust that you could be saved too. So what makes you so lovable to God? What makes you so lovable? Everybody stand up. We're going to do an exercise together. Everybody stand up where you are. Put it on this way. And Susan, you can
Jesus is out there. He's picking up on disciples. He's walking on the road, and he meets a guy named Matthew. Uh, yep. We're just so glad Matthew's been recruited, man. We just love this. But Matthew, Matthew has a lot of friends. In fact, everyone on this road, you're all friends of Matthew. And Matthew is so excited that he's met Jesus that he calls you all over. Now, he can throw, he can throw a big banquet because he's got a great job, because he makes a lot of money. Okay? Matthew makes a lot of money because he's good at what he does, but he also has the Roman government behind him, right? So he's got two or three ways to make money. He's got two or three investment streams. One of them is legal. The other two, they just overlook. But that's why he's got enough money to throw a great party. And it's an awesome party, right? And lo and behold, there's some religious leaders that have never thought Matthew was in. Matthew's always out. They don't want him in the synagogue. See, they don't want him to come to church. Remember Saturday, not Sunday. So they don't want him in Saturday school. Anybody go to Sunday school? They don't want him in Saturday school. They don't want him, right? They don't want him in a campus retreat. They don't want him there. Why? Because Matthew's out. So the religious leaders who are on the right side, right, why? Well, because they tell themselves they are. They look over there, and it's like, no one righteous is over there. So Matthew and your crew, silently, step back just a little bit. Very good. Because Jesus meets a lady, right? So Jesus meets this lady, and here's how he meets her. Come here, Okay. So at least is a loving, kind, generous person. And Jesus meets Elise at a well. He doesn't have a bucket. He doesn't have a cup. He's thirsty. He's tired. She's got a bucket. So Jesus walks up to Elise and says, I need a drink of water. Now this is a little awkward for Elise. Because see, Elise is a Samaritan. And she even brings it up. She just brings it up. Uh, I don't know why you're asking me, because your people don't have anything to do with people like me. At least she gets it out on the table, right? That's how it is. Jesus said, if you really knew who I was, you'd be glad we're here to yell. But she's not convinced of that. And neither are Jesus' followers. When they come back from their grocery run in town, and they're standing there with bags of groceries, and they see Jesus talking to Elise, they're like, what are you doing? John says, none of us said it out loud, but we were all thinking, what are you doing there? But there she was, the Samaritan woman. But Jesus keeps on doing what Jesus does. So Jesus, he's walking along, down to Jerusalem. He goes through Jericho. And in Jericho isn't just another tax collector. We've got a chief Chief tax collector. Oh, <laughs> Even Matthew boots, he boots Zacchaeus. So Jesus walks along, he sees Zacchaeus. Other people see Zacchaeus, but they don't see Zacchaeus. Well, they see him, but they don't see him. Because they don't like him. Jesus says to Zacchaeus, Hey, listen, let me check back up your house up. I'm on my way over. And what do the people say? How That kid is over there. But he's not done. Come on up. What's your name? <laughs> Jonathan. So glad to meet you. Well, Jonathan has made a series of horrendous decisions. <laughs> Old Jonathan here was born into a very wealthy family. And when it came time where he thought his dad's not long to live, he tells his dad, I ain't hanging around for this. Give me my share of the inheritance. I've got a life I want to live, and it won't work out on the farm. So out the door he goes, takes all his money. We find out later that how he spent his money was very foolishly. And when he comes back, he 
smells like he's been living in a hog pen. Now his dad. His dad runs out to meet him. Okay? His dad runs out to meet him. Jonathan's like, Dad, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you. Dad's like, well, you got to do things right. Right? I mean, it's if you read your Bible, Luke 15. You notice he doesn't interrupt because he was correct about that. But then he has the nerve to say, and I'm, I'm not worthy to be in the family. And that's where the dad interrupts. He said, you took it too far. Johnny did a rope, a ring, sandals, a feast. Killed a fat cat. But he's not a brother. <laughs> <laughs> he's not a brother. And the oh, yeah. See, the brother is like, not happened. He's busted his tail on the farm. He grew up with this rug rat. He's watched his ways the whole time. He knows the older brother syndrome. He's watched the whole thing. He watched him go out the door. He was mad then. He's been mad the whole time he left. And he's mad that he's back. But here's the crazy thing about it. He's not just mad at his little brother. He's mad at his dad. Do you remember Luke 15? Who does he confront? He doesn't confront his little brother. Who does he confront? Yeah. He's mad at his death. Hang tight. I got company coming for you. All right, guys. We have two guys. Now, this is going to be tricky, right? No, you're on this side. Yep. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a religious leader. And one, a tax gatherer. Do we see it there? One, a tax gatherer. Right? The religious leader's over here, and he sees the tax gatherer as a prop. A religious prop. Dear God, I thank you that I'm not like you. Here's all the things I get right. Here's everything he gets wrong. And it's kind of handy to have the contrast here at church today. This guy drops to one knee. <laughs> and he says, Lord, have mercy on me. Luke, Luke gets the crowd together. Neither one of them know that. The one thing they both agree on, listen carefully, this is the heart of what we're talking about in this message. The one thing they both agree on is he doesn't belong in church. You guys know that, right? He believes he doesn't belong, but so does he. But what does Luke say? So you know he's not done, right? Jesus is walking along. It's teaching time. Uh, Jesus goes into the temple court. And those of you that have studied uh, Jewish history, you know that we stand up to give authoritative messages. In Jewish history, they sat down to give authoritative messages. That's why at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it said Jesus sat down to teach them. That's why in John chapter 8, when Jesus is at the temple, it says he sat down to teach them. They had the seed of Moses, which was where they read the law from. That is important to know. So Jesus is giving official teaching. There's a mob that found this woman caught in the act of adultery. Now you understand, we're back in Esther's story. She's an object. No one cares about her. She's an object. No one cares about her. What does John say? They were using this as a way to what? Accuse him. It's a trap. Right? You remember that? 
So what does Jesus do? Anybody remember? You remember the story a little bit? Yep. Come on. Come on. Come on. Turn around. So what does Jesus do first? He bends down, draws on the ground. Right? Now who's out here? The crowd. The lynch mob. We got him. Right? But Jesus draws the ground. Jesus stands up. And he looks at the group and he says, Zechariah, you know, the other night, you know, I knew what was in your mind and you had lustful thoughts and, you know, Jeremiah back there, when you saw him in the act of adultery, you had lustful thoughts too. No, Jesus doesn't mean that, does he? Jesus just says, hey, listen, you guys take a quick inventory. Anybody without sin, wind up and let the rock fall. Bible says the oldest people that were there, the older guys were like, I'm out. Then the younger guys leave. Jesus is left with the woman. You remember that? And Jesus says to this woman, hey, where did everybody go to condemn you? Anybody? Not condemn you? She said, no one. He said, well, then neither do I. When you leave here, go live a new life. Right? Now, stay put because here's what changed the world. In John 8 and verse 6, where John says they were using this as a trap to have a reason to accuse them, the Greek word for accuse, you know this part of your Bible is written in Greek. The Greek word for accuse is kategoreo, categoria, category. How do accusations get so much power? Is they categorize people into groups, the deserving and the undeserving. Where does that woman fit in the undeserving? Where does Zacchaeus fit in the undeserving? Where does the tax collector fit in the undeserving? Where does the younger brother fit in the undeserving? Where do all of Matthew's friends fit in the undeserving? So they're in a what? A category of the undeserving. Agreed? Real quickly though. Where's Jesus? Oh, 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 he's on. He's over here. But I thought, I thought this was the category of the undeserving. But where's Jesus? Over there. Well, what are you doing over there? And you all realize this comes up when Jesus is on trial. You remember that? And the Bible says that there were accusers. Everybody remember that? It's the same Greek word. It's the same Greek word. And you know, they didn't have sin they could pin on Jesus, so what were they going to do? Put him in the category of the undeserving. So Jesus, how are you going to kill an innocent man? I mean, this is like a trial. How are you going to kill this man? Put him in the category of the undeserving. Let's just put him in the category of the undeserving. And see, then you can crucify him and sleep at night. You could kick a woman out of your village and sleep at night. You can catch a woman in the act of adultery, leave the guy there, break the law of God doing it, and sleep. You can kick your own brother out of family. But the story isn't over. The story is not over. Because for Jesus, there was no lie. Do you remember? Do you remember what Jesus, how the story of the prodigal son goes? When the older brother blows up at his dad? The Bible tells us that the dad came out and appealed to the older brother just like the younger brother. He endured the older brother's pain and anger. And he said to him, this brother of yours is home. This brother of yours, which means what? You're both in the family. And now here's the real kicker. You know, you know who you are. 
Do you remember this was the religious leader? The Pharisee? What was Paul? The Pharisee of Pharisees. Where did he imagine everyone was? The other side of the line. Where does Paul find himself? On the wrong side of Jesus. And what does Jesus say? I've got a fresh life for you to start helping You see, one of the strangest things in the world is as much pain as the Pharisees gave Jesus. There's such a pain in the neck. Who's Paul? Pharisee. Who's Nicodemus? Pharisee. Who's Joseph of Arimathea that gives a grave for Jesus to be buried in? Pharisee. What is he teaching us? What he's teaching us is when we go around on campus or in our dorms, or in your housing, wherever you are. And we're measuring up people. Who matters? Who doesn't? And we're doing it by silly notions like how tall someone is, how athletic they are, what their grades are like, where they come from, what's their money, do they speak well, are they easy to understand, do they speak English, do they come from another country? And we're separating out the world, and you understand what we're doing. We're adding a line where God didn't add one. Now, there's one last piece to this lesson. Revelation 12.10. Anybody got that available? Who would read Revelation 12.10? Well, we're turning to Revelation 12.10. There's a story about this big battle. And the battle is between the angels of heaven and the angels of hell. Michael the archangel and that old serpent, the devil, Satan. The Bible says that Heaven was stronger. The armies of heaven were victorious. But Satan had plans for the people on the earth. Let's read Revelation 12.10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength from the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused him before our God day and night, has been cast down. Hold up. The, the what? The who? The who? who who's the accuser of our the, brethren? The accuser. Well, that's the Greek word category. It's only used one time in the New Testament, and that's the name given to Satan. When we split up the world according to categories in a negative way, we are doing the work of God. Satan is banking on it. We're extending his reach, and he's accusing us before God day and night. But God is in heaven. Do you know why God is in heaven? Because he can't imagine heaven. And God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Right? Is this not the story? So, hey, Matthew and your party, would you, a party of 12, Matthew, please come forward, right? <clears throat> so, the religious leaders get on Jesus' case and they're like, hey, hey, why are you going to Matthew's house? This question is, why are, you, why are you not, why are you all not at Matthew's house? Because you don't understand who Matthew is. You don't understand how valuable he is to heaven. And the reason you don't get how valuable he is is why you don't spend any time with him. And you know the story of the prodigal son? You guys realize in Luke 15, there's only one parable. Read it for yourself. There's only one parable. You say, no, there's not. There's three. There's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. Nope. The Bible says there's one parable. The Bible doesn't say Jesus told parables. It says he told a parable. Read it for yourself. It is in the Bible. Read it for yourself. You know why? Because the lost sheep represents the younger son lost away. Lost coin represents the older son who's lost the home. And God is looking for both. And you remember who was gathered there to hear that conversation? It was those religious leaders and those pastors. People that were used to being separated. And Jesus is bringing them together. Aren't you glad you know Jesus? Aren't you glad you know about him? But what if we extended our whole lives to living like him? What if we extended our whole life? For living. So that the things that separate people in the world don't separate us. Because we resist them because we know where they're coming from. They're coming from the accuser, the category, who's working against the reconciliation of God's people. 
That's the story of the gospel. And Paul says, I was walking the road, and I was splitting people side to side. I put them all in a category and wishing for their death. And I met Jesus, and Jesus says, you got it all wrong. And Ananias raises his hand and says, well, Paul, I kind of put you in a category too. I had a phone with you. And the rest of us say, Jesus, without you, we all have this. We all have this. So what I want to challenge you with is this. If you want to know who you want to be, be a lover of people. We love because he first loved us. Be a lover of people. You want to know who you want to be? Respond with love. You want to know what you want to invest your life in? The only thing that matters. Faith expressing itself in love. This is the Jesus way. This is the salvation of the world. How many of you would like to see a world that could be rallied around that call of Jesus Christ to fill people? So, if the rest of you want to just gather, we'll gather right here. I'm going to close with one story and then we'll So this is how my faith was so deeply shaped. Right? I told you that I was born in Portland, Oregon, 1960. And uh, my mom was a vacation Bible school gentleman. She would take us, I think it was free babysitting. So she would take us to the Nautilus Church, Nautilus Church, Christian Church, Lutheran Church, Christian Church, Church of Christ, Canada Church of Christ. Didn't know where it was but we go to vacation Bible So we start going to this little church, Southgate Christian Church, we're going to vacation Bible school, and a lady named Rayda Danforth came to our house for the gospel of my mom. I'm in the first grade, my mom's baptized. Her husband came to the gospel with my dad. In the fifth grade, my dad comes to Christ. When I was in between my seventh and eighth grade year, something happened, I didn't know what happened, and my mom left her bed. I didn't know what happened. It was terrible. Terrible situation, a lot of problems, and pretty soon, we're not going to that church anymore. We're going to a new church. So there's, it's very exciting. How many of you remember seventh and eighth grade? It's not like the greatest time in life anyway, right? But all that was going on in my life. I'm the youngest of three. It's really problematic. Okay? So we truck along through life. But I don't understand what's happening. And I don't understand where my mom's living somewhere else. But that's what's happened. Fast forward. I go away to college, and not too long after I was in college, I would say, after we were out of college, probably eight, eight years or so, my mom moves to Colorado to take care of her mom, but she never goes back to Oregon. She just stays in Colorado on the farm where she was born, and my parents were separated like that for almost 23 years. So if they were in the same house, they slept in separate bedrooms. If they're in the same city, they slept in separate houses, and then eventually separate states. Okay? So, you know, grow up close to my dad. Pretty soon, uh, go to away college, get married, and we're trucking along. And in uh, 1993, in November, no, in July, we go to a family reunion. Out in Oregon, family reunion. My brother, who called me a butt-kissing fool the day I was baptized, has kind of had a little bit of a change of heart. And 12 years later, he's like, hey, amen. Sorry about that. How, how do guys make up? Yes. <laughs> 12 years of a mess. You know? Sorry about that. It's all good. This is how we do it, right? We're all good, right? So I'm kind of excited, and, and uh, uh, I want to come back and visit in November. My mom finds out I'm going back in November. She calls from Colorado. Are you going back up to Oregon in November? I am going back to Oregon in November. She said, well, I'd like to come up and see you. I said, well, that sounds great. She said, I'll come up and stay with your dad and, uh, and uh, get to see you. Wonderful. I go up there and I'm spending time with my brother. And my brother hates Christians in a way that's awkward. Like it's awkward. Like, you know how people can have like an attitude toward the church? But it's like he, hate, he hates individuals. He hates people I know. And I don't get it. I don't understand what's wrong. So I wake up on a Tuesday morning and I say to my mom, hey, I spent till 2 a.m. last night with my older brother, uh, Larry, and Larry just, he hates, I don't understand it. My mom looks at me, starts to cry, and says, it all started with the affair. What are you talking about? She said, you don't know? I have no idea. Now, bear in mind, I'm about to turn 33. This, this came out when I was 13. Okay? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. She said, the affair with Ted Jones. I said, the pastor? 
She's like, yes. She's bawling. She's a wreck. It felt like pieces of the puzzle of my life were hovering over my head for 20 years, and then they just fell to the floor, or fell to the table face up, and I could make sense of so much more. You can imagine. For the next two and a half hours, we're just talking through it. I've got a billion questions. And after that two and a half hours, I had a billion more you can imagine. My dad comes home from work that night. My dad's a construction worker. He comes home from work that night. You know, we have dinner. There's two twin beds in his bedroom. I'm in one. He's in the other. It's there at the Oregon night. It's quiet. They live out in the country. Uh, he does. And uh, it's dark. I said, hey, you awake? He said, I am. I said, uh, Mama, Mom told me about Ted Jones today. Pitch black. My dad says, uh, you want to talk about it? Yes! Are you kidding me? So for the next two hours, we're talking through what happened, and now I want to talk you through it so you'll know that Jesus is still doing today what he was doing when the Bible was being written. I said, first of all, why didn't you tell me? He said, I didn't feel comfortable confessing someone else's sin. I figured when they came that your mom was ready to tell you, she would tell you, it would be authentic, it would be between the two of you, and the timing would be right. Which is what happened. I said, did you ever think of divorcing her? He said, of course. Of course I did. And he said, I don't think everyone should do it. I did, but I had to be honest with myself, and I realized I still loved her, so if I had divorced her, I'd have divorced her for everybody but me. For friends and family. That's why I already done it. I was shocked. He said also, he said, your mom needed to know she was worth more than the mistakes she made, and I was in a unique position to show her that. And I'd been baptized 12 years earlier, but I was starting to figure out what that baptism thing was meaning. And he said, so many things were so profound, but one of the things that stuck with me is when we're going through life and we begin to imagine that a person is defined by their lowest moment, that's only a human way of thinking of them. That's not Four years later, my dad has to help open our surgery. Went out to Oregon for the surgery. We told the cardiologist, hey man, we, we, we're pipe fitters. You know, we've known it was valid. We put it in ourselves. She had a terrible sense of humor. Cardiologist, terrible sense of humor. My brother and I thought that was a good idea. So, my mom calls, you going out to dad's surgery? Sure. Uh, I think I'm going to go. Okay. So, I call my sister. My sister and my mom had not reconciled yet. But she didn't want to go. I called my brother. He said, there's not, a, there's not that much Zantac in the world. And I said, well, she wants to come, so she came. You get ready to go to surgery. My mom's standing there. And my dad says to my mom, one more time, I love you. My mom bends over and kisses my dad on the forehead. I can't believe it. My brother can't believe it. She walks toward us crying. I say to my brother, you're the oldest. It's on you. <laughs> I just can't believe this. This is in December of 97. Around April of 98, my dad calls and he says, you know, I think your mom and I are going to get back together. Now, you understand this is 23 years. I said, Dad, it's a bad idea. What if mom, you know, what, what, if, what if it's just a thing where she feels that way right now, but she, 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 she doesn't stick with it? He said, you can't love people like that. Just love them for where they are in the moment. Just love them as he said, besides, he said, I've got a lot of experience at this point. They get back together. Fast forward to 2014. My dad surprisingly dies. We've got to take care of my mom. We've got to take care of the farm. I'm getting ready to go out to the farm. And Susan challenges me to make sure I'm spending good relational time with my mom. Go out to the farm. It's a working farm. House is a bit of a mess. Next to me at the breakfast table, take care of the cows, 630 in the morning. There's a one-gallon freezer bag. My mom says, we hand that to you. I hand her a one-gallon freezer bag. 
Out of it, she pulls a little booklet that she made. Thick construction paper folded over, handwritten, stick figures. She said, read it. On the front of it, it said, I send them in here. We start turning the pages, and it's her having written down how she started coming back to the Lord after writing this. I stopped about halfway through and I said, Mom, when did you write this? She said, 1978. This is 2016. So you need to tell me that back when I was still in high school, God was working in your heart, helping you make the turn, helping you come back to him long before any of us knew it. Yes. That changed my way of thinking too. Because so much of what we're doing when we're categorizing people is we're pinpointing the moment instead of looking at the big picture. Have you ever felt like people did that to you? It's a thing, isn't it? How many of you would like to walk closely with the Lord Jesus Christ where he says, hey, we're not putting ropes down, putting some people on one side and some people on the other side. You need to know that God loves you just How much? God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die. Yeah. What if you and I and the uh, people around you, people in the family, people in this world, could it not make a difference? Could it not be revolutionary? That's why the Apostle Paul closes it out and closes out our series. There's three things that remain. Faith, think of Gideon. Hope, think of Esther. And life. The story of Jesus, the Savior, man like Paul, and the sick people. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the message that makes this kind of love possible. Lord, it's hard to take in the power of your love. But if we can just think of it like the ocean, even if we just wait in the surf, we'll feel different. Even if we can just take a few steps out into the waves of your love, it will change us. If we can just be immersed in your love, it will change everything. So I pray, Father, that every person in this room can know that they are a living, love child of yours. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's, let's go back to Thank you.